Let's pray. Holy Father, we give you thanks for your word and for your church. Father, uh, in the scriptures it tells us that you have called a people to be your people, to be the bride of Christ, to stand up in a world, to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to be light in that world. Father, to stand fast upon your word and your law. We thank you, Father, for your grace, which fills the gap between our obedience and our salvation. Because, Father, by ourselves, we cannot find our way home to you. But because of your grace in Jesus Christ, because of what he did for us on the cross, because of his uh, resurrection from the grave, defeating death, Father, we have hope. Hope not only in this life, but hope eternal. We pray this day, Father, that we will open our hearts to your love. And in the season of Lent, that, Father, we will examine our hearts. And that, not because, Father, we want to earn our way to you, but because, Father, we want to honor you and please you, that we will turn our lives around according to your will. Father, bless us this day as we gather as the people of God in this place, and bless people everywhere who this day join together to worship you. May our prayers and our songs and every word, Father, be a sweet aroma rising up to you in heaven. We pray this in the name of Jesus as we sing your praises together, and amen. Good morning. Please uh, join me in our prayer for guidance. Lord, Open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, may we hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Pastor said he'd never preached from Hosea before, and after reading this passage, I could see why. In fact, um, Jennifer sends out these passages to those of us who read several days in advance. I read this, and I thought, he's got to be kidding me. So I called the church office to make sure that this was really what he wanted me to read. Well, this is all of chapter 3. I'm glad we had children's church, because this is a PG-13 passage. (laughs) Anyway, here we go. Hosea uh, chapter 3, 1 through 5. And as I read this through the week, I read it about 10 different times. And I thought, Chad... You're just like Gomer in this package. You were pawed back by the heavenly prophet, priest, and king for the sin you had committed. And I'm just so thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ when we stumble and fall. He's still buying us back. The word of the Lord. The Lord said unto me again, Go, love a woman who is a lover and is an adulteress. Just as the Lord loves the people of Israel, though they turn to their other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver and a homer of barley and a measure of wine. And I said unto her, You must remain as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore. You shall, have, you shall not have intercourse with a man, nor I with you. For the Israelites shall remain many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterwards, the Israelites shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall come in awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. 
the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This is one of those books of the Bible that does not show up in Sunday school lessons very often, and uh, if it does, it has been um, severely edited, uh, taking out certain passages, because it is a story that uh, uh, in different versions of the Bible we'll use, uh, words such as whore, harlot, prostitute, and it is a Bible that uh, where God expresses the severe judgment upon the nation of Israel. Now, we're talking at a time, to be clear here, when Israel is divided into two kingdoms. There is the northern kingdom, that's the one where Hosea lived, that is the primary kingdom that he prophesies to, although he has some words for the southern kingdom. And in this northern kingdom, there were ten tribes. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin were in the southern kingdom. The remaining uh, ten tribes were up in the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom had, over time, under probably the worst king uh, in the Bible, Jeroboam, had turned away from God, even though they still had a surface relationship, worship with the God of Israel, their primary faith was in the gods of the Canaanites. And those gods appealed to people because those gods... uh, uh, were worshipped uh, through sacrifices that could be made most anywhere, whereas the God of, of Israel, you worshipped him at the temple in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom now. So Jeroboam began to set up altars in all the high places to make sacrifices so it would be convenient for the people to go and make these sacrifices to the Canaanite gods, which we know as Baal or Baal, uh, B-A-A-L. Uh, you may recognize that name from way back in the scriptures and Exodus and so forth. And Jeroboam actually said that it was those Canaanite gods who had brought them out of Egypt. And so you can imagine God, Yahweh, looking down upon this people who have totally rebelled against him, even though they still worship him in word, just not in deed or in their hearts. Uh, it's just a surface religion. And, and through the, the message this morning, which, by the way, is not the message I had prepared all week, for this morning, this, this seldom happens to me, but I sort of had a, a message, just throw that message away. The focus is not in the right place. And so I threw that away. And so what you're getting now will be a five-minute, no, probably. <laughs> Sometimes the ones you haven't prepared are longer than the ones you prepared. Uh, but what I want to share with you this morning what I, is what I really see as the heart of Hosea and why we avoid the message. Because to tell you the truth, uh, you know, I'm around a lot of preachers. I, you know, I've been in preaching class. I read a lot of articles. I'm on the internet searching and going and, and checking out what's going on in the church. And, you know, every day I get emails saying, if you would just purchase this plan, your church will grow, uh, you know, Three times within a month, if you will just do this. And, here, and here's a bunch of sermons that you can preach, and people will love them. And you want to preach sermons that the people are interested in. You don't want to force the message of the Bible upon them. So preach things that they want to hear. And, and, and I've had, as a preacher, people say, you know, I come to church to get cheered up. I don't want to hear any hard messages. I've had, I've had people say, I don't feel like I'm a sinner. Maybe everybody else is, but... 
I don't need to hear that I'm a sinner. I've heard people say I grew up in a church where the preacher was always, it was hellfire and brimstone, and that drove me away from the church. I didn't want to hear that. Well, let me tell you, Hosea is hellfire and brimstone, but there's another part to that. It's almost a schizophrenic book because there is at one and the same times the judgment of a God who demands our faithfulness and at the same time the love of a God who is willing to put up with most anything. And that is where uh, Hosea and Gomer come in. Now, Gomer, uh, you know, we usually think of Gomer as Gomer Pyle. We think of it as a man's name. But in this case, it is the name of the woman who God has directed Hosea to marry. In the passage that, that uh, Chad just read, uh, says, Then the Lord said to me again, Hosea says, The Lord said to me again, Go make love to a woman who has a lover and is involved in adultery. Can you imagine God? Who would think that God would say to anybody, go and make love to a woman who has another lover and who is an adulteress? Go find this woman. And when God says make love, he's not just talking physical, he says love her. He wants her to, Hosea to go and find this woman and to love her deeply. And so that's where it's a strange romance, isn't it, that begins like that. So uh, Homer goes, goes off and he finds Gomer. And he falls in love with her. And the first uh, few chapters of Hosea, there are 14 chapters in all, the first few chapters really focus on that relationship. And what happens is Gomer comes and uh, they're married, but then she begins to go off after men again. She, she goes back into her previous life. And uh, as, as she goes through that, from man to man to man, uh, eventually she will come back to Hosea, and she will give birth to three children. And the three children have interesting names. Uh, one of the names is No Pity. That's what it means in, in the original language. No Pity. The other name is Not Mine. Can you imagine a man naming his child, not mine? And the other one is named Jezreel, which if you know the history in the Bible, Jezreel was the place where Jezebel was thrown off out of the castle. And she, you know, she died from the fall, but just to make sure she was dead, dogs came and consumed her and picked at her bones. It was a ter- terrible thing. But, but Jezebel was in rebellion with the king at that time against God. And the place was called Jezreel. It, it, it would be sort of like uh, a Jewish uh, father naming his child today Auschwitz or Dachau, one of the concentration camps. And every time somebody heard the name of that child, it would, it, it would bring up that horrible memory of something in their history where their nation had rebelled against God. And this terrible and tragic event had taken place. And so his three children are Jezreel and no pity, and not mine. His life becomes a parable for what God's relationship with Israel is. Do you see this developing here? That the prophets, not only the words of his mouth, but his very own life will become a message to the people of their relationship to God. Hosea loves Gomer. And eventually, as she goes back to this former life, 
And she loves things, and she loves the things that her lovers give her, and she loves the money that her lovers give her. But eventually, her life takes a downward turn, as often happens when you pursue this kind of life. And she's left with nothing. And the man who she is now living with cannot support her. And so she is sold into slavery. Hosea, can you imagine? You have a spouse who who is doing these things, who has left you. She actually left him and said, I'm leaving you, and I'm leaving you with the children. Do not come back to me, and do not bring the children with you. In other words, I don't want to see these children anymore, and I don't want to see you. Hosea goes, and when he sees how penniless she is, that she is starving, she goes to the man who has no money to support her, who she is living with, and he gives her money. Or he gives money to the man to support his wife who has left him. Can you imagine his love for her that he would do that? And he did not reveal to her that he had done that. And so she thought this man was giving her everything. And then eventually, this man sells her into slavery And Hosea goes and buys her back. Chapter 3 at the very beginning. Buys her back. Now when we think about what God has done in history, all the times that Israel rebelled, and the times that God has stayed with her, the times that God has stayed with you and me in our rebellion, and that eventually he bought us out of our slavery to sin by giving his son Jesus Christ. That's what the story of Hosea and Gomer is about. How God wants us to love him. Not as a master, not as a creator, not as, uh, as, as, as a lawgiver, but he wants us to love him as a spouse loves a spouse. And he wants us to see that he has loved us in the same way that Hosea has loved Gomer. That he has given and given and given. He has purchased us out of slavery and all he asks for from us is that we be true to him. But even when we're not true, he doesn't give up on us. I think there's no better story in the Bible that illustrates 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. It says love is kind. Love doesn't seek its own way. You know, uh, love doesn't keep an account of wrongs. You know, this is what I see in Hosea. He's not keeping an account of his wife's wrongs, what she has done to him, and what she has done to her children. Children that aren't even his, but the children of her lovers. And so we look at this whole thing and we wonder, part of me says, if we were just sitting around and talking about someone today and you said, you know, I have this neighbor and here's what he's done and his wife has gone off and she's, uh, she's a prostitute and she's with other men and she's abandoned her children and she's abandoned him. And, and, and what, what would you say would be the logical thing in our culture to say? Why in the world haven't you divorced her? Why in the world do you stick with her? Why in the world, world do you still, still hope that she reforms and comes back to you? Are you that kind of fool? But when we look at God, this is what God has done. What kind of foolish God do we have who refuses to give up on us in our rebellion, 
and our turning away. We have a God who doesn't turn his back on us, a God who is kind, a God who is patient, a God who is willing to take that account of our wrongs and to wipe it clean with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And thinking about this passage this week, it occurred to me that there are many similarities between our culture and that northern kingdom of Israel that was in rebellion. I thought about how we we love to have it both ways, don't we? Uh, They paid a little bit of attention to their God and thought that was enough. And God said to them, I really don't want these... You know, they'd come, they'd make a sacrifice, we're good for the week, they're out the door, that's it. The rest of the week, they're ignoring him. They're, they're committing sin, they're violating every one of his laws. He says in, in Hosea, he says, I gave you my laws, and you have thrown them away. And we're sort of like that, where we think, I've done my duty to God. It'd be like a husband saying, I just spent 15 minutes with my wife in conversation. That's enough for the week. You know? Yeah. I spend more than 15 minutes a week with my wife trying to make sure that I can repeat to her back to her some of what she has told me because she's going to say, occasionally it's like a little test. Well, she say, now, what was I just talking about? So, uh, men, do you have that thing where you can pick up like every tenth word while you're focusing on the game and you're kind of hearing it? So when it comes back, you say, yeah, it was something about mowing the dog and walking the chickens or something, you know. Doesn't make any sense. But, you know, I really, in all seriousness, I think that we have a lot of reviewing our relationship with God during this Lenten season to see actually how serious are we about our relationship with God. How serious. God holds this up as a husband and wife relationship. The Bible in the New Testament, we're told that the church is the bride of Christ. So how is that relationship working with God? If we had this kind of relationship that we have with God, with our spouse... How healthy a marriage would we say that we have? And God doesn't want us just to come back and to be obedient to him. He wants us to love him as a spouse loves a spouse. And he has given us that kind of love and that kind of patience. When you go into into, uh, Hosea, and I found myself all week, by the way, saying Homer. (laughs) Homer and Gomer. Okay, so I hope I haven't done that a couple of times this morning. It's not Homer Simpson. When you go into here, it's very interesting to read how the prophet Hosea is going out to the people and what he is telling them, and you know that he must be the most unpopular guy in the northern kingdom for what he is telling them. I mean, it is harsh stuff. And yet, even in the harshness, it's always, God always comes back and says, and yet, I will not give up on you. And yet, I have plans for you. And that's very comforting to know that wherever we are in that relationship with God, no matter how unfaithful we have been in that relationship with God, no matter how many other gods we have served in our life, 
that God hasn't given up on us. That God still is waiting for us to come back home. That is the good news. That is the good news that we have, that we're supposed to be sharing with the world. But the book of Hosea also says, but we don't go out into the world and just say, God is love. You know, come to church. That's not the message. I had a, a, a professor in homiletics down at Duke, and one, one thing he told us, our class, and, and it has stuck with me all these years, and it is so simple. He says, good news can't be good news unless the people know the bad news. And it's true. Unless we know what the harsh uh, reality will be for us without Jesus Christ, then we don't realize exactly how good the news is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. If we don't let people know that there is a God, that there is a law, that we are lawbreakers. This is, this is the theme of the book of Romans. That we have broken the law. That there is no one who is good. No, not one. That we are all under God's condemnation. The bad news. But then in Romans it follows up with the good news. That Christ has died for our sins. And that God loves us with an everlasting love. Paul in Romans 7, most people love Romans 8, which is the good news. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. But in Romans 7, he says, what a sinner I am. I don't do what I want to do. What I know is right, I can't do it. And the things I know are wrong, somehow I keep doing them. And you know, he said, what a woeful man I am. I'm so frustrated in my inability to do what is right. And at the end of this whole struggle that he's letting out uh, into public, he's revealing his innermost struggle with sin. He says, but thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. That's the answer. Jesus Christ is the good news. And I bring that to you this morning, folks, as the gospel message, the total gospel message. That God has called us to holiness, that God has called us to obedience, that he has revealed his will in his word. But we can't do it perfectly. And so we will always, to some degree, be under that condemnation, except for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who covers our sins. Jesus Christ who calls us to repentance, obedience, and faith. This is one of the things I've noticed in a lot of the conversation I hear now in the church, and I hear in the Board of Ordained Ministry with folks, is we seem to have a pretty good grasp on God's forgiveness. We seem to have a, a pretty good grasp on the idea that we're under God's grace. But we seem to also have very little sense of the importance of repentance. Repentance isn't a word I hear a lot. Why should we repent? God loves us. So we can live as we want and do what we want. We don't have to know his word. We don't have to know his will. He'll just forgive us. That's a form of rebellion. 
And it's also a form of idolatry, which is a principal thing that Hosea is preaching against. And what is our number? What is our greatest idol in today's world? And then I'm going to shut up and go. But what is our the greatest idol in today's world? I may be wrong, but my observations of our culture and society, and you know, as you get older, you kind of have this wide spectrum. You can see back here and here, and the direction we've gone. I think our greatest idol is ourselves. We are a narcissistic people. It's all about me. Don't tell my child that they just lost that game. Don't hurt my feelings. You know, don't don't challenge me to be better than I am. I'm okay the way I am. You have to accept me now, this way. There's such a narcissistic bent that has overtaken us to where everything is about you can't tell me to do that. You can't make me do that. I have a right to do what I want. And that is so opposed to the spirit of Scripture, which tells us that the greatest joy in our lives should be the denial of self and the embracing of God. Deny thyself and take up the cross. That doesn't play well in today's world. And so this idolatry that whatever my need is has to come before the needs of others, before the need of the church, before, uh, before whatever God has called me to, that God has no right to tell me what to do or how to act. You know, we're in a tough spot here, folks, unless that can turn. And the last other thought that this came down, I wrote it down this morning. We are also, as a church... And I think this is part of the narcissistic bent. Churches are consumed with success. Because success turns to praise. And so our success is a reflection of who we are. And we're so consumed with success that something that I heard a lot over the the recent um, uh, debate... um, was that if the church doesn't change with the culture, then the culture is going to leave us behind. And before you know it, there will be no church because no one in the culture will appreciate the church's message because we've got to be in line with the culture. I heard that argument over and over and over and over. You see, that is the idolatry of success. The idolatry that the church has to be big. No, the church has to be faithful. That's the only thing God calls us to do. You know, Jesus never once set a standard for the size of the church. He said, go into all the world. But he never said, when you go into all the world, everybody's going to hear you and accept you and join you. He never said that. But we're to go and we're to preach the gospel to all nations. And we're to be faithful. And then if on the day that Jesus comes back, there are only three faithful people left in the world, God can deal with that. But too often, we want the church to be successful because it makes us feel good about ourselves and good about our church and good about us. And pastors, we worry about the count, the worship count and the the money count and everything else. Why? Because it's a reflection on us. We have to sacrifice that part of us that demands that everything 
be in praise of us and turn it around and say, we want everything to be in praise of God. We want a church that God looks at, that, they, that he knows it's not just the number of people in the, in the pews, but it's what in their heart is in their hearts. Do they love me as a husband loves a wife, as a wife loves a husband? Do they know that I have purchased them out of slavery? Do they know that I would do anything to bring them home? Will they love me? It's a strange romance, folks. It doesn't make sense in today's world where most marriages end in divorce because one or the other doesn't get what they want. And here God is just saying, I'm not giving up on you. I'm not going to divorce you. I'm in it to the end. Will you be in there with me? This morning, uh, if, if something in that story has touched you, again, I would, I would uh, really encourage you to go back and take a half hour and to read the book of Hosea and to meditate upon what it means. And by the way, when you get to the raisin cakes, there's this very strong pa- passage where he's condemning the people and he says, you know, you, you love your idols and you love your raisin cakes. Kind of struck me kind of strange. Raisin cakes. What's with the raisin cakes things? Well, they were kind of a delicacy. They were the favorite. You know, they were the, uh, uh, they were the, uh, uh, well, let's, let's say Mel's, uh, cookies. Um, okay. Okay. Shortbread cookies, yes. Of their day. And what the people would do if you really wanted to make a sacrifice to the, to the Canaanite gods, you would take your raisin cakes and you would burn them because that was a huge sacrifice to do that. So you're going to hit a few things like that in Hosea, but go back and read it and let it touch your heart. I pray this morning that, uh, that God's word is living in you, transforming you, and that you take seriously your discipleship in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Holy Father, you are the great Redeemer. You have redeemed us out of our sin. You have, Father, promised us that we will live with you forever. And that in this life we can know joy apart from the things that the world believes brings joy. That, Father, we can separate our love for you in a way that Father, stands out to the world where we are a light in this world. Father, we pray this day that uh, we would be faithful as a bride is to her groom, that we would be faithful to you. In all things, Father, we would love you, and our lives would reflect that love. Father, forgive us of our wayward ways and bring us home. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and amen. Hear these words from Hosea. Let's know, let's press on to know the Lord, whose appearing is as certain as the dawn, who will come to us like the showers, like the spring rains that give drink to the earth. I desire faithful love and not sacrifice, says the Lord. I desire the knowledge of God instead of entirely burned offerings. Choose to follow me. And do not pursue worthless things. Amen.